great to be together. We are well trained by the chimes. I just actually recognized that the theme song from Meet George Jet from the Jetsons, I think. Meet George Jetson? So anyhow, um, sorry to share my random thoughts. Uh, and let me introduce myself. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm a, one of the pastors here, and I get to bring God's Word on most Sundays. Thank you for being here. We pray God's blessing on you as we uh, worship the Lord. That's what we're doing when we come together, is to be in God's presence, to worship Him. We do that through many different things. We do that through singing. We do through prophetic words, sharing of Scripture. We do it through uh, the sacrament of communion on Sundays, and we do it through listening to God's Word. He, he meets us through His Word, and, and we've been going through this series on the Old Testament it's been a flyover series. It's kind of uh, the sort of series where we're, we're covering a lot of material quickly. And uh, as I prepare this week, I was just aware of that aspect. At times, I think it's helpful. At times, it can be a little frustrating. Uh, it's kind of like flying over Disney World. And as you maybe fly into Orlando, you see Disney World and you see all the different parks and you know about, you learn about it. Like, well, that looks really cool, but then you don't go to Disney World. Uh, but I trust that as we fly over the Old Testament and look at all these wonderful truths and these wonderful truths about God and what it means to be his people, um, you will benefit from the flyover, but also go and visit the books and dig in and study some of these books and get into more detail. This morning we'll be doing a flyover of Ezra and Nehemiah and we'll be looking at the, the phase of the life of God's people in the Old Testament where they were restored from exile. So last week we talked about living in exile and and the lessons that, that they learned and we learn from their exile, from living in exile. And this week we're going to look at their return from exile and all that went on there. But first, just some thoughts to prepare us for the truth here. If you study the history of God's people uh, over the millennia, over the thousands of years, you'll, you'll find many points in history where things looked really bleak. You can visit a lot of different points. So you could visit around the year 410 A.D., when the Goths, the Germanic tribe, uh, overthrew Rome. And it looked like Orthodox Christianity would be wiped out even by that conquest. You can look later on in the 1400s when Western Christianity had drifted and was full of legalism and nominalism and empty ritual, and it, it seemed that it would forever displace authentic Christianity. You could look in 1529 when the Ottoman Empire almost swallowed up Europe in the attack on Vienna and thus wiping out perhaps Christianity in the West and displacing it with Islam. You could look at the American Revolution shortly after the American Revolution and all the, the enthusiasm of the Enlightenment and the humanism that came with that that was somewhat attached to the Revolution where that seemed to take over and it became the religion of the country and seemed to rule the day and it looked like Christianity would perish shortly. Actually, you can look more recently. Pew Research uh, Organization has just shown that there are more Americans, and I think we have a slide for this if you want to move ahead. There are more Americans currently identified as unaffiliated than any other religious group except for evangelicals. So recently they've surpassed um, mainline Protestants and Catholics. That's unaffiliated. Basically, I don't belong to any group. It could be anything from someone who's just not interested in, you know, being part of a church to someone who's an atheist or agnostic. That group uh, in America has grown to the second biggest segment in our country. Recently, Lord Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury in England, reflecting on the precipitous decline in church attendance in Britain, said, quote, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We are one generation away from extinction. If we do not invest in young people, there's going to be no one in the future. So question is, are we in danger of seeing God's people vanish from the earth. Well, certainly over history, the distribution and numbers of God's people have shifted, but in every one of these crises that I've mentioned, when things looked the bleakest, the church did not perish, but instead the church was restored in some way and thrived. In Augustine's day, though, Rome was conquered, it was a turning point in the history of the church that launched them into aggressive evangelism of the northern parts of Europe that led to the Irish and, and the English and so forth 
coming to Christ and then a vibrancy through that. The malaise of the 1400s led to one of the most epic restorations we've seen in church history, the, the Protestant Reformation, the restoration of the Word of God. 500 years ago this year, uh, this happened. The siege of Vienna was turned back, and now the, the simple gospel truths at the core of Christianity are doing something no army could ever do, encountering and transforming thousands, even millions of Muslims throughout the world. And the entrenched humanism that threatened to seize the day in the early 1800s gave way to the radical gospel transformation of the Second Great Awakening. And I trust in God's good providence we are on the verge of a third, fourth, or fifth, however you number it, Great Awakening in the West. God is sovereign over all of history. And He has a sovereign plan to redeem a people for Himself and eventually to fill the whole world with such a people. When things look their bleakest, God Himself restores us. That's the lesson of the post-exile books in the Bible. That's the lesson of Ezra and Nehemiah and the other books associated, just so you know what those are, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So there's five altogether that, that are addressed to the post-exile people of God. So I want to look at the story in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, these books actually at one point were considered one book, two volumes of one book, and they are very much connected. They're, they're contemporaries. I want to look at this. I want to dig into this two-volume book, and I trust through it that we'll learn about God's restoration, and I trust through that God will increase our faith for restoration. I don't want to just inform you. I want God to transform you and me through this truth and increase our faith and then teach us about living out in light our lives in light of the restoration that God brings. That's my prayer. I believe that's God's will for us today, so let's, let's pray and ask Him before we read. Lord, thank You. You are the Sovereign One. You are in control. You are God Almighty. You rule over all of history. You have a plan. You're in charge. And the things that we see, the struggles we encounter, the feelings of despair we might feel, the perspective of bleakness, bow before You, the Sovereign One, and Your Sovereign plan. And I pray, Lord God, you would restore our faith in you, the God who restores us this morning as we look at your word. And I pray you'd teach us how to live in light of that and all that we do. Lift our eyes up to see you, our sovereign God, and the restoration you bring. Use your word. Fill us, Holy Spirit, with your presence and power. Empower me as I serve your people. We pray, Lord God, you, through all this, you'd be greatly glorified. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Follow along with me. Just the segment we'll be going through the book throughout the whole time. The segment of Ezra in the beginning. It says, chapter 1, verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, Besides, free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his God. Ezra chapter 1, 1 through 7. Thus begins this glorious restoration. Last week we, we visited Daniel and we learned about the exile, that the people of God had broken covenant with God. God had graciously rescued them from Egypt, and had brought them to himself, provided for them, called them into covenant, called them to, to live in his grace, to believe his word and to obey it. And he gave all these promises of blessing and prosperity for them. 
really amazing promises if they would simply abide close with him. And they didn't. Over time, they wandered, and they wandered into all sorts of things. And basically, they had 400 years or so of wandering into deeper and darker evil, into idolatry, into witchcraft, into greed, sexual perversion, and even murder, infant sacrifice, and so forth. So God, according to his goodness, had to respond, had to be faithful to his promises, and part of his promise to his covenant people was, to, in the, the Old Testament, was that I will bless you, but if you wander, if you betray the covenant, if you walk into these things, I will bring cursing on you. You will be exiled. You will be disciplined. You will be punished. God was very patient. 400 years of waiting for them to respond to the prophets and repent. And overall, they did not do that, and so he brought his punishment. They were exiled. They were banished. And they were sent away into first the northern kingdom, the ten tribes sent to Assyria and scattered about, and then the two tribes in the south sent into Babylon. And you would think that was the end of the story. They were exiled out of the land. The nation ceased to exist. And really, can you think in history of, of nations that have gone through something like that, ethnic groups that have gone through something like that and yet survived? It, but these weren't just any people. These were, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people. And God was in control. And so God, God restored them. He restored his people. He restored his covenant people. He is the God who restores us. That's the message in Ezra and Nehemiah. Our God restores us. He's faithful. He's good. He's faithful to the covenant even when his people were not. And he restores us. So let's learn some of the lessons here. First, just that he restores his people. In the story, we, we read of his restoration, of sending them back. It's amazing, actually. He stirs up the heart of Cyrus. He's sovereign over every king, every leader. He's sovereign over Cyrus. He stirs Cyrus's heart. Cyrus probably doesn't even know about what was said about him almost 200 years before in Isaiah. And he's mentioned twice in Isaiah, around chapter 44, 45. It says in 44, 24, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, then verse 28, who says of Cyrus, so Cyrus is named almost 200 years earlier, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. This was made by Isaiah almost 200 years earlier when Isaiah was appealing to the people to repent and be restored, and they refused. God said, I will, I will send exile on you but then I will restore you. So Isaiah is full of glorious promises of restoration and redemption. And as promised, Cyrus shows up, takes the throne, and God sovereignly acts in him, stirs him up to call God's people to return. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing story uh, that he calls them to return, and then he, he calls the people who live near them to give them gold and silver and animals and wares and and what what do the people do they do they give people all those things and they come back to the land it's actually akin to when god rescued them out of egypt right when they came out of egypt the egyptians gave them stuff and they were wealthy and blessed and god stirs up the heart of cyrus he stirs up the heart of their neighbors as well and they come back laden with with all the things that they need god comes through gloriously in his gracious gracious restoration and thousands of God's people return in great joy. It's just an amazing story. An incredible story. I, it's hard to think of, a, of something to compare it to. I was thinking, you know, how can I compare it? Maybe I, uh, this, this could happen, but imagine if Cuba somehow, who's been under dictatorial communism for so long, has struggled in some ways. Cer certainly there was good done through that, but so much. Imagine if all of a sudden, you know, we see within the next five years just a change in the government. There's there's freedom and virtue as well. They end up, you know, restoring all these different freedoms and, and, and rights and so forth, and then they become prosperous, and then they become like a place that's just, you know, a, a model for the world of what, what freedom and virtue looks like in a country. Imagine that. I mean, we'd, we'd all be like, wow, uh, that's what the sort of thing that's going on here is this restoration is just incredible. And they faced something worse than Cuba's seen, really, in their exile. So God is amazingly gracious and faithful to restore them, and they come back to rebuild the temple. It's interesting, just as you read through Ezra, chapter 2, the entire chapter 
uh, is, for the most part, devoted to naming the people. And rather than rushing through that, I mean, there are purposes that Ezra named them so they would know who were the legitimate exiles and so forth, but, but without rushing through it, just think there are specific people, there are lives, there are families and individuals who experience this restoration, who, who, who were stirred up themselves to, to go back, to believe God, or to go back and to rebuild, and went back, and they experienced it. And, and just to recognize that when God restores, He restores individuals. He does something bigger than the individual, but he restores people. He's a restorer of individuals. He's a gracious God. And they come back to rebuild the temple. They come back to, to fix the temple, to rebuild it. This is the heart of who they are as a people. Their identity is as God's people, and the temple is a place where they meet God. So, so being restored isn't just physically being put back in the geography of, of Israel, but having the temple rebuilt and and. You can read in Ezra 3 about that, chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the, the priests and their vestments came forward with the trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, quote, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Can you imagine being there, hearing that, and them singing? The temple has... The foundation has been relayed. It's been fixed. And, and they're just all in awe. They're, just, it, they're probably feeling, this is like a dream. Pinch myself. Is this really happening? We're back. And not just that we're back, but now the temple is being fixed. God has restored us. And it, it continues. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, and by the way, this is about 50 years after the first one was destroyed, so they would have been old enough, to, the older ones, to remember. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. So many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So just the mixed emotions. Can you imagine being one of the older ones? You went through God's discipline. You, you had experienced the heavy hand of the Lord, the righteous heavy hand of the Lord. You had seen that former glorious temple, and you knew you deserved to have it destroyed. And here is restoration happening. Just all the mixed emotions. It's, it's quite a moment in the history of God's people. They continue to, to seek to build the temple. They encounter opposition uh, from Israel's enemies. There are people who have been resettled in the area who are not committed to, to God as the only God. They've created this mix mishmash of, of uh, poly, multi-god worship. Um, and so they don't want to see God exalted, really. They want their thing to keep and keep going. They want to keep power, and so they oppose. And there's opposition. Actually, the, the building of the temple stops for a little bit, and then God sends prophets to them to encourage them to trust God and to come together and to not re retreat into you know their own agendas. What had happened, you read in Haggai, is that that they were building their own houses and just said, okay, you know, we're not going to be doing the temple. And God said, what are you doing? You're, you're in your beautiful homes. What about my home? <laughs> and so Haggai and, and Zechariah call them to faith, call them to repentance, call them to build the temple. And they do that, and it is finished. And Ezra chapter 6, verses 14 through 19, records when it was finished. It says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, they finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Edar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And then it says on the 14th day of the first month, they returned exiles kept the Passover. The Passover was the main feast of remembering their covenant with God. So this is saying that they had a celebration of their covenant with God, the Passover. So it's a, it's a high watermark in the restoration. Um, we celebrate the covenant similarly, analogously, in communion together. The storyline continues. 57 years later, actually, Ezra is sent by God to bring a restoration, another wave of restoration of the Word of God. And so, so uh, the first part, first six chapters of Ezra, he's just recounting the history up until he got there. And then he talks about his history of restoring the Word of God. 
also, uh, 13 years later, his partner, fellow leader, Nehemiah, brings another wave of restoration of the walls of the city. By the way, this is probably the same time that Malachi is sent by God to be a prophet to call them back to sincere worship of the Lord. So 57 years later, and if you read the storylines, they seem to sync up. So they're probably the same time Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi as well. And there's a, a restoration. So the, they've been restored to the land. The temple has been restored. And now God restores them in the word through Ezra. And we'll talk about it shortly. And God restores the walls as well through through Nehemiah. These were all really important aspects of what it was to be the people of God in the Old Testament. Certainly the temple is the core of who they are. It's their identity. The city of Jerusalem is, the, is really the core of their identity as well. They are called to be a city set on a hill. They're called to be a distinct people, sanctified by God and for God. They're called to love one another, to love Yahweh, to give their lives to him. And, and Jerusalem symbolizes that. So the temple in Jerusalem being restored physically. Uh, Nehemiah actually calls them to live in the city because a lot of them were basically living in the suburbs. He says, come and live in Jerusalem. A number of them come and settle in the city. Then he rebuilds the walls. Uh, he leads in rebuilding those walls. And, and those walls are important because they provide protection from enemies, but also they bring up them together in close proximity. It provides definition of community and identity. And that's important for the people of God. They, they are to be protected from the world. They are to be a distinct people. But those gates were to remain open during the daytime. And the temple was to be a place uh, where the nations would come. They were always intended to be a city on a hill as a distinct people. The, the temple is called a house of prayer for all nations. And they were set right in the middle of the major nations of the day to be a beacon, to shine, and to invite people to come in to God's community. A lot of a lot of analogs for today and God's people today, right? Some of the things, we are to be a distinct people. We're not to be blending with the world, but we are to be an outwardly oriented people, shining on a hill, inviting people to come and see. Going out, actually, we are all temples ourselves, right? So we go out and we are salt and light in the earth, but we are, we are not just there, we are, we are beckoning people to come in and, and know the Lord. And so the people, to be the people, needed these elements so God restores them by restoring all these things. It's a glorious restoration. It's miraculous. It's amazing. Even just historically, you step out of, outside of the Bible and outside you know, of, of our worldview, the true worldview of faith in God, and just look at the facts. And the world has to look and say, wow, this is amazing. The restoration, the, the thoroughness, the completeness of it. It's astonishing, and it comes from our God, our sovereign God, our gracious God, a God who restores. And he continues to do the same. This is not just history. This is a picture of the nature of God and what it is to be his people. In 1994, the nominally Christian nation of Rwanda erupted in some of the most brutal, horrific sectarian violence in history. Militant members of the Hutu tribe, I think we have a stat to show for this, the militant members of the Hutu tribe murdered over 800,000 of their Tutsi and Hutu neighbors using guns, machetes, and clubs. They killed thoroughly and indiscriminately. When people fled to the marshes, they hunted them down, killing men, women, and children. The church was so weak at this point that actually Christian leaders, church leaders, participated in the genocide. It was a horrific low point. Some of us remember, remember that. But what God has done in the aftermath of this terrible tragedy is truly amazing. God has brought restoration in Rwanda. Many Rwandans have been touched and transformed by the love of God and the power of forgiveness. Even being able to to forgive the very ones who murdered their loved ones. There are many stories out there. One is told by CBN of, of a woman named uh, Aline Umagoweneza. She was 16 when the genocide began in Rwanda. Her, her mother and siblings fed, fled their village, and as they were going, their mom paused to help somebody out, said, go ahead, I'll catch up with you. They never saw the mom again. She was killed, actually burned alive. Horrific. Later, when Aline took refuge with a family and her many siblings, 
while she was away, the family killed all her siblings, thinking that they could get her family farm. Eileen fled and found refuge with another family that really knew Jesus. And this family loved her and ministered to her. And Eileen came to faith in Christ. You look now, actually, there are many in Rwanda who came to Christ after that terrible tragedy and now are in churches and growing. Eileen found Christ and she found power to forgive in her relationship with Christ. She encountered the, the clear commandment. If you don't forgive others, God will not forgive you in Matthew 6. And she realized that she was one who believed in God's forgiveness. She had to extend that same forgiveness to the murderers of her family. Can you imagine? By the way, you can look up this stuff online and you'll see case after case. of Actually, uh, the, the church in Rwanda, the Christian church in Rwanda has led in reconciliation. They've led and there's commissions, government-sponsored commissions of bringing people together the actual perpetrators with the victims, and then the victims forgiving those who murdered their family. It's amazing. Eileen was able to do that, and she experienced peace and new life in that, and today she serves as a missionary and a leader in the government. And Eileen's story is duplicated in the lives of thousands of Rwandans who've been able to forgive and heal and find new life in Christ. And right now the church in Rwanda is thriving and growing. And the economy of Rwanda is the fastest-growing economy in Africa. And trust in God's wonderful restorative grace, it will be a spiritual leader in Africa. Our God restores. Our God restores. No matter what your story might be, we have a God who restores it. In the story of Ezra, we also learn that he restores by his word. He restores by his word. He uses his word to restore us. And, and this truth rings through the post-exilic books. All these, these five books that I've mentioned, you'll see as you read through them, please do take time to read through them. You'll just see how the Word of God brings that restoration. So Ezra's really whole ministry, for the most part, was to bring the Word of God back to God's people, to bring the law, to teach the law. And he went and led in that. And there were other priests as well who led in the teaching and explanation of the law. And it's a glorious story to read as the people encountered God's restoration through the word. Nehemiah 8 records this, this occasion where they come together to hear the word. It says this, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And they hear the word, he explains it to them. And it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So Ezra brings the word and, and people are convicted and they encounter God through it. They realize the depth of their sin, but the, the promises of forgiveness, the wonder of restoration. And, and, and there's a mix of emotions again, and Nehemiah and Ezra say, this is a holy day. Celebrate. And so they celebrate. They have a great celebration that, that, that they've rediscovered the word. They understand God's word. And so it's a wonderful picture of the restoration God brings through his word. Now, in those other books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, God uses the prophets. He brings restoration through the, through the encouragement and exhortation, correction even, of the prophets. They bring God's word to address things. He's faithful to his people to address them and to call them to faith and repentance and fresh obedience. And it's just wonderful to see that. That's what God's word does, by the way. God's word restores us. If we want restoration, go to the word. Go to the word and encounter God through, through his word his restoration comes with the truth of His Word. His Word is living and active, and, and it restores us. It gives us life. We, we, we don't live by bread alone. We live by the words of His mouth. 
His Word is living and active. If you want to know God, you want to know His glory, know His Word. Get in His Word. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Bible, that's what that means, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipping for every good work. God's Word restores us, and that's why we as a church are committed to His Word. We're committed to the proclamation of His Word. We're committed to obeying His Word. We're committed to sharing His Word. We're committed to structuring our lives and our church around His Word. We're committed to walking in the commission from His Word. We're committed to His Word. And God restores us through His Word. On Sundays, we we don't come to hear a relevant message. We don't come to hear an entertaining message. We don't come to hear a heartwarming message. We don't come to hear an intellectually stimulating message. Though, when God's Word is rightly preached, it often is one or all of these things. We come to hear God's Word regardless. We come to hear God's Word rightly understood, rightly handled, rightly proclaimed, and by His grace amongst us, rightly believed and obeyed. That's how we experience his life as a church. That's how we experience restoration personally and corporately through his word. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for the Protestant Reformation. I have no reservations saying that. Grateful for my Roman Catholic background, but grateful for the Protestant Reformation and what happened in that, the restoration of the word of God. The word of God had disappeared. Certainly from the people of God, it had disappeared from the pulpits of God, even the leaders in the, the church at the time. It disappeared from them. It was, it was often tied up, chained up, and not accessed. And God, in His glorious grace, restored the Word. Yeah, there are rough edges in what went on, but at the core, the Word was restored and brought life to the church. And that life and fruit has continued for 500 years. May continue, and it will, as long as we're in the Word, for another 500 until the Lord returns. Thank God for the restoration through His Word. So let me just offer a few thoughts for how we can be part of this. First, can you pray? Can you just pray? Pray for us as a church. Pray that we be a church saturated in the Word, empowered by the Holy Spirit as we, as we encounter the Word, experiencing restoration in life through the Word, through all our contexts, Sundays, small groups, Bible studies, even just casual speech, a people of the Word, and through that, knowing the life and restoration that God brings. Second, can you pursue your part to fulfill those prayers by listening to the Word and sharing the Word with one another whenever you can in a helpful way? Second, can you come on Sundays intent on hearing God's Word? Don't measure Sundays by the secondary thing. Not whether it's a relevant message or informative or heartwarming or entertaining or intellectually stimulating or any of those things. Don't measure by those things. Measure it by, is it God's Word? What is God's Word proclaimed today? And if it's God's Word, God, give me grace to believe it, be transformed by it, and obey it. Now, again, we're committed to proclaiming it rightly, and I think when we do it, it will do those other things. But don't focus on those things. Often when people tell me, and probably the other guys as well will do the same, you know, I, I really like the message, I'm not content with that. I'm, I'm encouraged by it, so don't please, please don't stop. It's encouraging. But I'll usually say, well, what was it that you liked? And you guys will usually answer something substantial. It was truth. I learned more about God. And those, those are the most encouraging things you can say for feedback. Now, I won't get upset if you say, well, that was very relevant or that was very informative, you know, but, but that's not what we're after. 
Sure, that's good, but our goal is that you would encounter God and His truth, and you would encounter restoration. You would encounter Him addressing your own heart, your own soul, your own life at a deep level that leaves you walking out the door different than you came in. That's what His Word does, and we don't do it. Our job is to be faithful in it, proclaim it, do our best to communicate it, that He's the one who restores us through the Word. And he'll do that as you help in these different ways. Next, and two more points fairly briefly. God restores us through his leaders. To read these stories in these five books is to read about how God uses leaders. We see all sorts of leaders being used. We see prophets. Certainly people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel as well, and what they said before the exile and before or during the exile and before the restoration. God uses the prophets to proclaim the truth that would encourage and, and inspire and lead God's people. But he also uses contemporary prophets in that day, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. He uses leaders who are prophets to lead God's people, to encourage and exhort and direct them. He uses leaders who are priests. A prophet is someone who declares God's word to others. A priest is someone who really ministers in God's name, bringing God's people to God. That's the idea. So God uses priests, Ezra, and those with Ezra as well, to lead them, to minister to them, to direct them to the Lord. And then God uses kingly or governing leaders like Nehemiah and Zerubbabel to lead God's people and in inspiring them and organizing them to accomplish the task. Through prophets, priests, and kings, God leads his people in restoration. These are the leaders in the, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. And really it's a pattern for his leadership beyond that. There is an ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Do you know his name? Jesus. Always a good answer, right? Jesus himself, who proclaimed and fulfilled God's word as God's ultimate prophet. He's the living word, and he fulfilled it. He leads his people through being the, the one who proclaims the truth and fulfills it. He is the great high priest. He leads us to God through his blood shed on the cross. He himself made the ultimate sacrifice, shedding his blood, offering up his perfect life, his righteous life, as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. The wages of sin is death. The, the appropriate response of God in our rebellion, in our turning away from him, the just response is to say, okay, I turn away from you. That's what death is. To be separate from God is to be dead, spiritually. And that state will continue if we abide in that state forever. That's what hell is. Hell is, is, is exile from God. It's misery. The Bible uses all sorts of horrific things to describe it, but, but the, the core of it is it's exile from God. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. His blood was shed on that cross so that you don't have to pay for your own sins if you would believe him. He offered up that righteous life on your behalf as well, not just to pay for your sins, but to satisfy God's right requirement for righteousness. God made mankind to walk with him in righteousness. No one has done that but Jesus himself. And he offered that up on the cross in your place so the Father would receive you through faith in Christ as if you had done all the righteous things Christ himself did. Isn't that amazing? That's what we are in Christ. We are righteous. We are clean. We are accepted. He is the great high priest. He leads us through his atonement and resurrection. And he shepherds us as the king of kings. And he is restoring, and he will finally and fully restore his people at the end of all things. That's good news, isn't it? Jesus has done all that. He has given gifts to his church as well. So in the meantime, part of how he operates in these roles as prophet, priest, and kings, he gives gifts to his church to lead his church. He gives pastors and deacons in the, those offices to lead the church. He gives other leaders as well, but they are, they are called to, to live out, really, the, the leadership that comes from Christ himself, this prophet, priest, and king mix, as they speak God's word, as they minister to God's people, as they lead God's people in these different ways. God restores through leaders. This is what we see and Ezra, Nehemiah, and really throughout the Bible. Last week I mentioned Frank Bartleman. Does everyone remember that name? I talked. He's the guy who 
who fasted and prayed for revival to come to Azusa Street, and he was desperate for the Lord. It's a great story, but there's one thing about Frank Bartleman that is not a good story. He, if you read his accounts, he, for some reason, I don't know all the reasons why, he seemed to dislike leaders. He says actually once, uh, at least once, if, I think multiple times, that, that basically human leaders displace God as leader. And he couldn't be more incorrect. God, yes, indeed is the leader, but God uses his leaders, the leaders, people in restoration, to deny the leaders that God has rightly set in place is to deny God and his leadership. This is how God works, and, and so it's a terrible flaw in this man who otherwise is sincere and devoted to the Lord to not see that, to miss that. Now, you might think, well, yeah, that's Frank Bartleman, whoever he is, and that's like 100 or so years ago. That's a relic. That doesn't happen today. Oh, yeah, it does, doesn't it? And I just you know, want us to pause and think about our own lives. I think as Americans, as New Englanders, maybe we're the... I don't know if we're the worst at this, but maybe, maybe just because we're human, we tend to be anti-authoritarian. We tend to be anti-authoritarian. We tend to think, you know, we'll tolerate leaders. Or they, or they have their role, but, you know, we just got to keep our sights on them, make sure they don't go out beyond that. And certainly leaders need to be accountable. There are biblical ways to do that, so I'm not saying they shouldn't be. But we have this anti-authoritarian trend, and it's not in line with Scripture. God uses leaders to bring restoration, uses leaders rightly set in place, that's the qualifier, rightly governing by the word, but he uses those leaders to bring his restoration, to, to do his work, to bring life and health to the church. So, so here are some application questions for us in light of this, what we see in Ezra, Nehemiah, and elsewhere. Are you taking full advantage of the care, the counsel, the Guidance and encouragement that God would give you through your pastors here and other leaders, deacons and other leaders. Are you taking full advantage? It is good to grow in maturity and to operate independently, so I'm not saying every single thing you should talk to a leader about. There's a good place. But, but we can overdo that and we can operate on our own where we miss the benefit that God would have in our lives and through our lives through good leadership. Now, I'm not saying this because there's a crisis going on. There's no, no crisis in the church on this. And you guys actually do very well in this, I think. But we all have this tendency toward, to drift towards independence and to, I think, in that, miss the opportunity to experience the life of God in its fullness. So when you face a major decision in your life, are you seeking pastoral counsel? Are you getting the counsel that God would give you through pastors? No, you don't have to, you know, call Toby to ask what brand of tire you ought to buy, you know, or something like that. But if it's a major life decision, like, hey, my, my company wants to transfer me to Seattle, and, you know, and this will mean this and this and that, just what do you think? Help me think through that. Help me think biblically on that. When you're facing major obstacles in your life, are you seeking help from the shepherds God's called to care for you? shepherd you to help you through that you're not meant to face those obstacles on your own certainly take advantage of the body as well and all this hear that aspect but take advantage of the shepherds who are called to help you in such circumstances do you have an idea for ministry or some helpful input on something you're not called to talk to others who aren't involved in that too often we do that right we talk to others about the problem instead of talking to those who can solve the problem so you have an idea or input, come to the leaders, whoever they might be. Come to your pastors. We have sought to build, and I think we have a culture where, where there's, there's no barrier, there's no distance. We're, we're all together in this body, but we all are, are according to our roles. So come and bring your ideas and inputs. Help us all to do an even better job. Let's take full advantage of all that God has for us as a body through the proper functioning of leaders because God restores his people through the use of leaders. Final point, and again, briefly. I guess that last one wasn't too brief, was it? Um, God restores in hope of a greater restoration. To read the story in, in Ezra and Nehemiah is to, to realize that, you know, they were restored, but it, just, it, it wasn't the whole thing. There's something that, that's missing. It, it, the promises are glorious, 
Uh, we see there's, there, but, but in the story of, of the restoration, there's no glorious large temple that we read about in Ezekiel, you know, from which water pours forth and transforms the world. There's, there's no temple like that. There, there's no mountain of the Lord where the nations come to hear God's law. They don't, the nations don't start coming in mass to the mountain of the Lord. The lion isn't lying down with the lamb. The swords haven't been beaten into plowshares. God hasn't brought final judgment on evil and, and establishment of everlasting peace for his faithful. And God's chosen Messiah, the ultimate leader, who would atone for sins, put an end to evil, and bring in everlasting righteousness, as Daniel talks about, has not yet appeared when Nehemiah ends. So as great as this restoration was, it left them wanting more. They certainly lived as the people enjoying what they had, but they were looking forward to something more. Now we know that that something more is through Christ. Christ has now come. Atonement wonderfully, final and full for all those who trust Him has been made by His precious blood. Victory, victory, final, complete victory over sin and death has been accomplished. And He has risen from the grave. We're going to celebrate that in a few weeks. He's risen indeed. He's alive. And through faith in Him, all these things are ours. The kingdom has come in Christ. The kingdom is now. But it's not yet. He has come and done all this. He's already paid for all sins and established victory. But the fullness of it and all that's going to come from it hasn't come yet. So we too live in an already and not yet like they did. And there's wonderful things going on. The gospel is going forward in the earth. Lives are being transformed, as I alluded to. Muslims are coming to faith. Countries and cultures are being transformed. It's, it's an amazing time to be alive. I, I tell the younger generation, you are born into quite an amazing time to be alive and be a Christian. But we also know, along with all these glorious things, and I can tell you stats and stories all day about all that God's doing in the earth, there's also great evil going on, isn't there? There's great tumult going on. There's, there's great instability that we see side by side. And, and if I understand the book of Revelation correctly, that's going to continue side by side to the end until he comes back. And so we live in already not yet. We live in this tension of the kingdom having come and experiencing glorious things and, and yet not the fullness of it. So how do we live in light of that? I think we're to live like they did. I would expect they did. They enjoyed what they had. They pursued what they have. And they waited for more. We as well are to pursue all we can. Enjoy it in all that we do. We are to orient our lives around the kingdom. We're to know that, that, that as we seek his kingdom, praying for it, living it out, contributing to the expansion of his kingdom in our lives, our families, our churches, our communities, and the nations, as we do this, it leads to a final fulfillment. And it fits together in a continuum. And everything we do to contribute to the kingdom now will we'll experience a fullness when he returns. So every life that gets transformed now by the gospel and as the kingdom expands will experience fullness of life at the end. A fullness of life, a, a full salvation. Every work we do in the name of the king now will be rewarded in fullness. So the fruit the experience will only get better. So we invest now, and there's benefit now, there's life now, there's change now, and, and in the fullness of the kingdom, it will it'll be glorious. The dimensions of what that means will not be fully revealed till we're there. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So we invest now, the kingdom's here, but, but that investment will produce a return that's far greater than you can imagine. People who come to know Christ now, will be transformed now. But they'll be gloriously and eternally transformed then. And the whole earth will be as well. And everything you do towards, that, towards the kingdom will be rewarded in, in such a way. Maybe to finish, let the band could come up with a, with a metaphor that would help you. In 2005, we got to go to Italy. And when we were in Italy, uh, we enjoyed the food. And one of the things that we enjoyed was the pizza in Italy. Of course, pizza comes from Italy, right? And uh, our favorite pizza there actually was just mar uh, margarita pizza, is that what they call it, right? Which is just simple, simple pizza, the bread, a red sauce, 
uh, mozzarella, buffalo mozzarella cheese, and then fresh basil. And to have that in Italy was amazing. It was like pizza uh, I had never had before. It was like, you know, my, our taste buds were, were multiplied a thousand in our experience. As you would eat, as you would eat it, it was like, wow, this is incredible. Um, and it, it was great. We loved it. We had a great time eating pizza and other things, too. Actually, all the food was really good. Uh, ben, come up if you're ready. Uh, so as, uh, so at, with that experience, we came back. And did we stop eating pizza because American pizza is not the same? No. We still make pizza. We make margarita pizza and other pizzas. We still enjoy the pizza. But we always remember Italy. I think that's a picture of living in already and the not yet. The pizza in heaven, actually. I think there'll be pizza. It's going to make that Italian pizza look like frozen pizza, you know, stale, frozen, freezer-burned pizza. It's going to be glorious. But we don't just wait for that, do we? We make pizza now. We invest in people now. We live for the kingdom now. We live to touch lives now. We, love to be, we live to be like Christ now. And it's glorious. It will be glorious, and it is glorious. And it will only get better because what you do now, in a sense, you're making the pizza now, that's going to become pizza that's glorious and eternal. You'll enjoy and celebrate forever. That's how we live. That's what it is to be a Christian. God restores us with a final restoration in view. C.S. Lewis says in the last battle, his fantasy about the final restoration of all things under Christ, if we could put this up. He says, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's the restoration God has for us. All this God has done, is doing, and will do. Our God restores us. So... Put all your hope in Him. Give Him all your needs. Give Him all your life. Give Him all your concerns, all your efforts, all your plans, all your worship. Because our God restores us.